So how y'all doing? You doing well? Everybody enjoy the extra hour of sleep? Yeah. Yes? Yeah. So good, isn't it? I wish every day was 25 hours. <laughs> Did anybody decide to stay up later and not take that extra hour? Some, yeah. Yeah, not me. I find in the more, the older I get, the more and more I enjoy my bed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's true. Well, we're going to talk about t- tough conversations today. How many of you have learned that life can be full of tough conversations? Right? When was the last time that you had to have a tough conversation with someone that you cared about? My wife, Jessica, and I struggled for years into our marriage, often because we failed to have the tough conversation. And rather than talking with one another and confronting issues in love, we would completely avoid the issue altogether. And it would often cause frustration and anger, lots of passive-aggressive behavior, until finally everything just kind of blew up. And it ended up causing some, lots of damage to our relationship in the process. And we almost didn't make it. We almost didn't make it. But I praise God that we did. He is faithful and his grace is great. But one of the, the things that happened just in the last few weeks, we were in the car and we were having a conversation about something. And I don't remember what it was, but all of a sudden she looks at me and she said, you know, you're really annoying me right now. And I was like, Yes! <laughs> That's not something you'd probably think you want to hear, but it just showed that we were at a whole new level in our relationship. And it was good because that kind of stuff would have just been buried before. But there's a healthy way to do things, and we have that level now where we can talk through some things. But, but there was a time that I wish it was longer ago than it was, but I initiated, I had to initiate a tough conversation with her because I had done some things, and I needed to confess to her, and I needed to ask for her forgiveness. And how do you have a conversation like that when you know that you're going to hurt the one that you love, and that it might damage your relationship in the process? How do you do that? Pastor John and I have had some tough conversations I know some of you are still surprised, but just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I'm perfect. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, I hear that sneer. But I have asked Pastor John, I've given him permission to speak into my life, and so he can give me wisdom and guidance and correction. And when that happens sometimes, man, I don't like it, right? It's uncomfortable, and it hurts because it exposes my flaws and things, areas where I've failed. And a lot of times I feel defensive. I don't like it. But you know what? If that doesn't happen, it's not going to help me grow. It's not going to help me grow. It's not going to help me get better at being a pastor, a man of God, or just a person. And I need that. And I know that he loves me and that he wants the best for me. And so I know that I can trust him because of that. And I'm going to grow because of that. And today we're going to look at a passage in James where he had to have a hard conversation with people that he cared about. Now often what seems to be the easier path for us is to just avoid the conversation, pretend it's not there. But when we love someone, 
And when we want what's best for them, sometimes you just got to bear it and have that conversation, don't we? So we're going to hone in on James chapter 4 today. We're looking at verses 7 through 10. If you remember, we hit verses 1 through 6, I think, back in March. It's been a while. So just for a quick review, I'm going to get a drink of water. Just for review, James talks about the evil desires within our heart, the wrong motives that we have in wanting only that which gives us pleasure. And these things, he says, would identify us as adulterers because we carry on a friendship with the world, wanting that which the world offers. And this is revealed in our selfishness and in allowing ourselves to be lured by the world's temptations and promises. And James says that makes us enemies of God. So we're going to read James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Why don't we stand up together as we honor the Lord and his word, and we'll read this together. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Thank you. You may be seated. Now as we're reading this, does anybody just kind of think like, whoa, seriously, James, that's a little over the top. A little extreme. You want me to have grief and sorrow? Gloom instead of joy? Like whatever happened to trading my sorrows, man? Right? You know the song? I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my shame. And I'm laying them down for the joy of the Lord. Right? Or how about this one? I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. There you go. Right. But James is saying, no joy for you, buddy. Gloom and deep sorrow. And as he's done with other parts of the book, James again offers a very strong and even scathing rebuke here. And is this really how a believer needs to respond? Because remember, James is talking not to unbelievers, but he's talking to believers. Believers that he loves, that he cares about. He calls them brother and sister. And within these few verses we just read, he gives ten commands to the believer. Ten commands. These are given in a Greek errorist tense, which basically means that this isn't a gradual process. This isn't something that is gradually done. It's a means of sanctification, but there's a sense of urgency here. An immediate decision needs to be made. Do something now, Christian. Do something now. And I could take these directives one by one, all ten of them, and give lots of supporting scripture and expound on them until we're all ready to go to sleep. Wouldn't that be fun? But I want to approach it a little differently. Because the message, I think, is very clear. It's very clear. And what I want to ask is how might this apply to us? How might this apply to us? So let's take a look. Humble yourselves before God. Humble yourselves before God. Other translations use the word submit to God. What does it mean to humble yourself? 
What does that look like? What does that look like? I think we saw a powerful picture last week when Chris McKinster came up here in front of the whole congregation and he asked for forgiveness. That was powerful. And some people might think that makes him look weak, but I'll tell you, I saw strength. I saw strength and I saw restoration. I saw a man of God. And that was pretty cool. So thank you for that. But cultures have some very different displays of humility throughout the world. Very different. Within a few days of us coming back from Thailand, a few weeks ago, we found out a couple days later the king had passed away. This king was the longest reigning monarch in the world. He was king for 70 years. 70 years. And his people loved him. And what was amazing to me is Pastor John showed me some video about part of his funeral process. I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was lines and lines of people in line to show their respects to him. And instead of standing and walking, this line, they were on their knees like this. And they walked on their knees like this. And when they finally got to the front, they bowed down low like this. Just to show honor and humility before him. Have you ever seen anything like that? It was an incredible picture. It blew my mind. And I want to be clear, it's not that we should be bowing before men. But this displays a very powerful picture of humility, of giving honor. And when we look at the idea of humbling ourselves before God, I think it's really important that we understand clearly that he's not an earthly king. He is not an earthly king. He is a creator. He is the great I am. He is not only Savior, but he is Lord. He is Lord. And he said through his prophet Isaiah, he said, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. And this is not a relationship of equals. This is not a relationship of equals. We are under his authority. We are under his command. And we can sing, I am a friend of God. He calls me friend until we're blue in the face. But it doesn't change the nature. It does not change the hierarchy of our relationship with him. He is God. And we're not. And when we respond, we should always be one of submission, one of humility and honor and reverence. Always. So we need to humble ourselves. Submit to God. And James says, resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee. And Paul reminds us in Ephesians that this is a spiritual war that we don't fight against humans. But he says we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. When we resist the devil, he proves to be nothing more than a coward under the authority of Jesus' name. Isn't it amazing? He flees. And yet, why do we act so helpless sometimes? Do you ever wonder that? Why do we act so helpless? Because God says that you will not be given any temptation beyond what you can bear. He will always provide a way of escape. 
And there is an active resistance on our part we need to make. We need to resist. And when Cain killed his brother, back in the very beginning of time in Genesis, God told Cain, if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Because sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. You must subdue it and be its master. And it is so important that we don't allow the devil to have any kind of a foothold in our lives. None. Now, King David learned this the hard way. If we look back in Scripture to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read about King David and his progression of sin with Bathsheba. Okay, and realize that this is a progression here. This is just like us. It's not something where all of a sudden a man commits an affair and that's it. There's a long progression that starts a long time ago. So this is what David did. He sent his men off to war. They were in a battle, okay, fighting his war. For whatever reason, he stays behind. He doesn't take part in that. And one morning, he's walking along the palace rooftop and he sees a woman taking a bath. And she's beautiful. It should have stopped right there. Could have been an accident, just let it go. Should have stopped right there. But what does he do? He tells somebody, go and find out who she is. And then he goes and he sends messengers to her to bring her to the palace. And then he brings her into his bed. And he sleeps with her. So she goes home, finds out, Later, she's pregnant. Oh boy, now what? So she sends word to David. David knows he's got to do something, so he calls her husband back from battle, Uriah. He's fighting David's battle. He's fighting for Israel. And he brings him to the palace, and he says, hey, go home and relax. Code words, go home and sleep with your wife so nobody finds out this kid is mine. Right? And Uriah doesn't do that. He sleeps at the palace door. And so David asked him, what are you doing? And Uriah says, how can I go home and sleep with my wife when my master's men are camping in the open fields? See, Uriah was an honorable man. He was an honorable man. So David goes to plan B, okay? He gets him drunk. He gets him drunk. He tries again. Go home and relax. Enjoy your wife. And it doesn't work. So finally he sends David, or he sends Uriah back out to battle. And he tells the captain of the army to put him at the very front of the battle where the fighting is fiercest. And Uriah is murdered. So there's a progression of sin. David starts out with coveting and then adultery, then lying to cover up his sin, and finally murder. Murder. And you know what's crazy? What kind of blows my mind a little bit? David, the man after God's own heart, seems completely oblivious to what he had done. It's crazy. There's no confession. I don't see any repentance. Nothing in Scripture indicates this. But God sent his prophet Nathan to David, and he had to blatantly call him out for what he had done. And then David recognizes his sin, and he says, I have, conf- I have sinned. Isn't that incredible? I find it incredible. But when I contemplate this story, when I think about it, I had to wonder, are we, are we really that different? 
Do we recognize our own sin? Do we recognize our own sin? Do we recognize when our thinking is so far from God's that we are becoming essentially a product of this worldly system? Because here's the reality. The American church is in decline. Everybody knows that, right? Churches are shutting down. Thousands of people are leaving. Kids that are growing up in the church are going off to college. They're not coming back. And we are following the ways of Europe. And whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we are now a post-Christian nation. It's right now. And when we think about it, why would it be any other way? What do we expect? What do we expect when we surround ourselves constantly with entertainment from Hollywood, continually pushing an agenda that is in opposition to God's, when we immerse ourselves with ungodly influences, and then our own Christianity at the same time becomes nothing more than ritual prayer before meals or going to church on a Sunday morning? What do we think is going to happen? Are we not programming our minds to think more and more like this world? If we fill our minds with so much other stuff, if we fill with so much stuff and there's so much noise in our lives, we're so busy and the radio is always on, the TV is always on, and we can't hear God speaking to us, what do we think is going to happen? Back in the time of the Old Testament prophets, God accused Israel of committing adultery with other gods. And, you know, there's a cycle God continually poured a blessing and favor on them. And then the people would get comfortable. They would get comfortable. They would forget God's provision. They would forget his blessing. They'd forget everything that God had done for them, right? And then their hearts would begin to wander. Their hearts would begin to wander. They would become idle. And eventually they began to look elsewhere for their provision. Say, where is this God? I don't see him. I don't see him doing anything. And then they sought out other gods. They sought out other means to get what they wanted. And in the process, they became more sinful and more prideful. Are we that different? Are we that different? Because honestly, when I study the prophets, I see a lot of similarities between us and the same Israel that fell under God's judgment. I do. And if nothing changes, I don't see that there will be any other result than God's judgment. It's a little sobering. Now maybe we don't worship idols in the same way that they did. You know, we're westernized. We don't do that. We don't create these statues and present offerings to them. But is it that much different? Israel put their hopes in these false gods. But what are we putting our hope in? Where are we placing our hope, our trust? Is it in our bank accounts, our 401k, the stability of our government and world? Where are we investing our time? What are we doing with our time? You know, the American family is falling apart. It's breaking down, and it's happened for years. But I see more and more families that are and I don't want to offend anybody, but sports after sports after sports after sports, like everything that week, there's so much, and it keeps us so busy, and we're constantly chasing after our kids for this stuff. Is that really healthy? Is it really good? Is that going to help them get prepared for life, for eternity? What consumes our thoughts each day? What are we thinking about each day? 
And what drives us? What drives us? Where is our definition of success formed? What defines that for us? Is it what God would say is success? Or is it something else? And what have we allowed to determine our self-worth? What do we say gives us value? And be honest with yourself about this. We need to be honest with ourselves. Where are we getting our value from? Is it how we're doing as a mom and dad? Is it in some person? In our things? Are we placing our stability and our foundation in Jesus, or is it something else? Is it something else? And what, what about love? What about love? Do we love things more than we love people? Jesus said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Can people see Jesus in us by the way that we love people? I know I fall short. Now our trip to Thailand has opened my eyes in a number of different ways. You start seeing things with a different perspective. And I've realized something about myself. I am really quick to put a label on somebody. I'm quick to put labels on people. I'll explain that. Jessica, when we had the testimonies from our Thailand team, Jessica shared that we were with a missionary. His name was Ivan, and he served in the slums. And one of the things that he told us was that people are not what they do. They're not what they do. He said it's a choice they make. It's not who they are. It's not what defines them. And I thought, yeah, that's good stuff. I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I thought I got that. I thought I understood it. But it took a while for that to really sink in. We were in Bangkok. We were working with these women, meeting every day with these women. They used to be prostitutes, and, you know, praise God, he brought them out. And we were working with these women um, pretty much every day that week. And I remember our first Monday we were there. I was leading worship, Okay. And I started, and into the first song, I had to back off the microphone because I was so overwhelmed. I was just in awe. I was, I was, tears were streaming down my eyes, and I was just overwhelmed with God's love and his faithfulness in seeing this display of love and worship from these women towards God, these women who had been set free, who have a hope that they had never had before. It was amazing and powerful, and seeing what God had done in their lives was just Wow. Wow. And the next day, the very next night, we went to Nana Plaza. Nana Plaza is one of the three big red light districts in Bangkok. And we split up. The, the women went in deeper than we did. We just hit the streets, the guys did. But one of the things that we were supposed to do with this guy that was guiding us, we were supposed to pray. We were on a prayer walk. I wasn't praying. I wasn't praying. I was just overwhelmed with everything there. I was, I was scared. There were women all over the place, lots of loud music, women looking for men, looking to sell their bodies so that they could make a living. There were men looking for sex. And I was very aware of the own depravity in my heart, of the darkness inside of me. I was very aware of my propensity for sin. I was disgusted by it. I'm being honest. I was disgusted by these women who were selling their bodies 
to, to make a living. And I was even more disgusted by these men who were looking for that and doing these things to them. And in this, in the sea of people, I did not see people. I saw prostitutes. I saw despicable, disgusting men. And it didn't hit me until later that week when I realized that the same women that had touched my heart so much in these nightlight chapels were the exact same women in that plaza. If we had been there just a few months before, we may have seen some of those exact same faces doing the exact same things, grabbing us as we walked by or touching us. And it wasn't necessarily because they they wanted to even. They felt they had to in order to survive. And it was in that moment where I realized that when I did that, when I put this label on them, this prostitute, and I looked at them in this way, I stripped them of their humanity. I did. I dehumanized them. I made them something that they were not. These were men and women of God, created in the image of God. They were made in God's image. And I wasn't seeing that. God loves them. And the interesting thing is, since I've come back to the States, you start seeing things in a little different perspective. You know, things pop out at you that they didn't before. And I've realized that we have a tendency to do the very same types of things. You know that? We just don't realize it because we get comfortable with it. It's familiar. Somebody thinks differently. They think differently than we do. And not everything, but we have certain triggers. Something that really irritates us, something that we can't stand, and they think differently than we do. And we immediately write them off as an idiot, a moron, somebody that is not worthy of our time. And we begin to strip away their humanity. And we put them as this one little set of ideas. Something that they said or something that they did or something that they posted on Facebook. And we dehumanize them. And you know, once we do that, in our minds, we start absolving ourselves of the responsibility to love them. Do you ever think about that? And one of the most obvious places that you see this is in politics. It's in politics. I think few would deny that this election has brought out the worst of humanity. The very worst. And you know, it's disgusting. What I find disgusting is that we have somehow allowed this to become the norm in our culture. It's just become acceptable. And What bothers me is that so many of us, so many of us in the church have allowed ourselves to be divided or even defined by our political ideology. That bothers me. Because it seems that more and more this has become our God. This is our frame of reference. This identifies who we are. And there's no room for civil discourse anymore. We can't even talk to one another. It's gotten to the point where we don't try to understand someone else. We don't understand their perspective when the reality is that even if they're on the other side of the aisle, they may have some worthy things to say, some worthy ideas, something that are worth considering, but we don't listen. And rather than speaking from our heart and discussing real issues, we tear each other apart with our words. And we use some kind of political speak we hear in the news or on talk radio. And that's it. We tear each other apart. We demonize one another. 
And there's so much more to people than a little soundbite that we hear. There's so much more. There's more to people than what they believe about a particular subject. There's more to people than what they put on Facebook. It's true. (laughs) These are men and women created in the image of God. They're men and women created in the image of God. And the truth is, maybe they are wrong. Maybe they are, and maybe you're wrong. Does that mean that we should look at each other as something other than somebody created in God's image? Does that mean that we should not love them? Is it, does that somehow absolve us of our responsibility to love them? It's just kind of crazy how far we've let ourselves slide. And beyond that, man, there is like mass hysteria. People are freaking out. They're freaking out. Posting just like, wow. And do we realize who is in charge? Do we realize who's in charge? Because we whipped ourselves into this mass hysteria. And you get the classic, you know, this is the most important election ever. Every election. <laughs> you know? We're going to die if this doesn't happen. Okay, maybe. You know, and, and maybe this is the most elect. It probably, probably is. We're at a crossroads right now. But I see believers posting in a frenzy on Facebook about their opinions, and about how stupid people are for not seeing what they see, for being so blind and dumb. And they're talking about other believers like this. And I just like, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. They are believers who claim to know God, and I have to wonder. I want to ask them, why are you so panicked, Christian? Why are you so panicked? Who's in charge? Who is your faith in? Is it in God who alone sets up nations and rulers and brings them down in his time? Or is it in a human politician or some political ideology? Who is your faith in? Because politics, I tell you, politics is really good at speaking at things while doing little to nothing to actually address the issue. It's a band-aid. And we think it's going to solve the world's problems. Seriously, people need Jesus. And I'm going to tell you that all these Facebook posts that people put on there, for some reason we think we can say whatever we want and do whatever we want. And I will admit that there are times when I just want to put something in there just because it somehow will make me feel better. It's not the case. But we do this. But I want you to know that what you post on Facebook gives evidence to who or what you believe that your faith is in. That gives evidence to who your faith is in. What have we put on there? And why? I'm getting on a tangent. Why do we think it's so okay to speak evil of those in authority over us? When did it become okay to badmouth our president or our governor? It doesn't matter who it is. Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, in a couple of months, Hillary Clinton or, or Donald Trump. You know that's going to happen, but when did that become okay in the church? Because let me read what what Paul says in Romans. Romans chapter 13. He says, Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. 
So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but to keep a clear conscience. And he tells Titus, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. And just to give a little bit of perspective, Nero was the emperor when Paul was writing these things. Nero. He makes our presidents and our leaders look, I don't know, sure ain't the same. Nero was known for persecuting Christians, killing, slaughtering them. We are to honor those in authority. And that doesn't mean we have to agree with everything they say. We don't have to agree with everything that they do. But we should honor them by our words and our actions. And rather than slandering, let's pray for them. Let's pray for them. They need it. Have we recognized our sin? It goes back to this. Have we recognized our sin? Do we see it for what it is? Have we allowed our loyalty to become divided between God and the world? Because I want us to remember that this is not our home. This is not our home. We belong to an eternal kingdom that is not of this world. This is temporary. So let's not allow ourselves, let's not succumb to the world's way of thinking. Let's not do that. When was the last time that we shed tears for something that we had done? And when was the last time that we had great sorrow and grief because of our sin? Because sin is wicked. Sin destroys. Sin hurts people. And it wreaks havoc on our families and everybody that we love. And that's what God hates. God hates sin. But have we become so comfortable with it that we don't even recognize it when it happens? Maybe the issue is that we've wandered from God. Maybe the issue is that we have found our hope and our comfort, our safety in the things of this world. And maybe God might say to us, like he did to the church in Ephesus, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Have we lost our first love? Have we lost our first love? It's a tough conversation. When the prophet Nathan had that tough conversation with David, and he confronted him about his sin. David's response was, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he showed humility before his Lord. And in this, this is where Psalm 51 comes from, from that situation. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. That was how David responded. So how, how will we respond? What will our response be? Now, I want you to remember that James writes this passage not to tear down. Sometimes this hurts, but his intent is to build up and strengthen the church, to restore our relationship with God our Father, to bring renewal. And he says that if we humble ourselves, God will lift us up in honor. And that's a powerful picture of his love for us, for the church. And so I just want to take a little bit of time. Let's humble ourselves before our God. Can we do that? You show humility? Because we have left our first love. We've put our hopes in things that are not God. We have allowed apathy and complacency to take up space in our hearts. And we're often concerned more about our own comforts than in God's plan and purpose. We have rebellion in our hearts. So if you are both physically capable and willing, not going to force anybody, but if you're physically capable and willing, I'm going to ask us to corporately kneel before the Lord as a demonstration of our humility and our submission to Him. And I'm going to ask one or two people to pray a prayer of confession, loud enough for everyone to hear, but a prayer, a prayer of confession that will demonstrate our dependence on God and asking Him to purify our hearts. I don't want a political speech or any kind of preaching. Let's just confess our sins before the Lord. Can we do that? So if you're physically capable and willing, let's kneel before Him. And as the Holy Spirit directs you, let's just show humility and pray. So as He directs, your love is so great. Your love is so great. Evidenced by the blood of Jesus who died on the cross for our sins and washes us clean and makes us whiter than snow. God, thank you. Let your light penetrate the darkness. Renew us, restore our hope in you. For you are the giver of life. And you came that we would have life and live it to the full, to have life to the full. Maybe a little different life than most people might think because your life is much more than the things that this world offers. Father, thank you. Thank you, God. And now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on us. Give ear, our God, and hear. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous but because 
of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. Amen. 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 Church James tells us that when we draw near to God, he draws near to us, and he gives grace to the humble. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have a great God, and he is amazing. As we read before, the psalmist says, I confessed all my sins to you, and you forgave me. My, my guilt is gone. And God wants to strengthen us and restore our hope in him. He's for us and not against us. And he wants to bring us a future and a hope. So I want us to leave here encouraged, and maybe with a new perspective, maybe some new ideas, aware of our own sin, aware of some of the things that we have not realized and we've kind of strayed. Elections are Tuesday. They're Tuesday, and our nation is at a crossroads. They are. Be a part of the process. But no matter what happens, let's love one another. Seek to understand and not necessarily to be heard and to be understood. And let's always remember that God is in control. God is on the throne. That doesn't change. It's not going to change. Yea for us. Yea for us. So, may God shine on you and give you grace to walk in his ways as you set your path to trust in him and to live by faith. God is good. Amen? Amen. So as, as you leave, we've got some exciting things coming up. Brenda shared. We're going to need everybody on board. This is a big thing and we want to reach our community for Jesus. We want to show them the love of Jesus that changes lives, that changes hearts, that gives us a hope that is beyond understanding. So go out, take a look and see how you can get involved, how you can be a part of what's happening. But I want you to know I love you guys. I do. Pastor Dan and I are thrilled to be your pastors and we're grateful for all of you. So have a great week. May God bless you and keep you. I'll see you next week.